An important role that technology plays in healthcare is to help solve problems. Some common problems we have in healthcare at the moment revolve around aging population, an increasing burden of chronic disease, and those problems of accessibility that we talk about and making healthcare more available for those that need it most. Technology can get a pretty bad rap sometimes in healthcare, especially when it's technology for technology's sake. There's a bunch of cool tech out there and how much we do need the bells and whistles versus just the practical understanding of what the problem is and how we can work to solve it is important. Someone who's lived this throughout their career and built a company around it and is making a meaningful dent in this space is Mohinder Jamangal from Curve Tomorrow. In this episode today, I'm chatting with Mo about his story and how Curve came to be. And also we delve into the concepts of value-based healthcare and why it's important. Let's do it, guys. Collaboration starts with the conversation. Team Health Tech, let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Mo Jamangal. He's the co-founder and CEO of Curve Tomorrow, a digital health technology company aimed at significantly impacting the lives of 1 billion people. Since 2009, Curve's built over 30 digital health products, working with over 50 health partners to impact over 250,000 people. Mo's current focus is improving health outcomes and equality through value-based healthcare, digital ideas, and products. Hey, Mo, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good, Pete. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for joining. It feels like a while since I've spoken to anyone from Curve Tomorrow on the podcast. Actually, we were just chatting before we recorded. Back in February of last year, we recorded episode 32, I think, with Sanch. So it's been a while between recordings. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, and a lot's happened in our space, and yeah, I'd love to talk more about it. Yeah, and, and for those that don't know your story, Mo, and, and your background, it'd be great to get a bit more of that from you. Can you tell us a bit more about you, please? Sure. I've got a quite interesting background. So I'm born in Guyana in South America, and I moved to Melbourne when I was quite young. And I don't really remember Guyana, but I know it's, it's a beautiful country, but it's quite poor. And so growing up as an immigrant in an immigrant family, you're constantly reminded by your parents about the struggle that they go through and how lucky you are to live in Australia and all the things that you get here, like not having to line up for bread and um, stable government and healthcare and education and the opportunities are vastly different to where they'd come from. So growing up and knowing that these two worlds exist, like what I was growing up in in Melbourne versus what my parents had grown up in, started a question for me around why? Why is this like this? Why is the world like this? Why is there this inequity? And I didn't know what inequity meant when I was young. I just knew that, hey, things are different. And why is that? Why am I lucky to be here? And I've got some family who are not lucky and are still there. So that question plagued me as a kid. And you don't really know what to do with it. You know, you go through school and, you know, coming from, again, an immigrant family, you know, they want you to be a doctor. That's their success criteria for, <laughs> for moving country. So I didn't do that. So I disappointed them and I studied robotics at Melbourne Uni. 
which was a consolation prize for, <laughs> in their eyes, but they're, they're very proud of me. And so in studying robotics, uh, and it's called mechatronics at Melbourne Uni, I met a bunch of other people from similar situations who had either come as an immigrant or grown up or seen the world and asking very similar questions around inequity in the world and wanting to do something that changes it. And the stuff that we were learning at uni, it was pretty cool like we're talking about machine learning and robotics and how we can automate things. And in our minds, that was how do we take the best of what we've got here in Australia and externalize it to the rest of the world. So having gone through that course and meeting that group of people who've become my lifelong friends, uh, we all went into industry. So for me, I went into the software industry and worked in the consulting business, working with big enterprise customers in Melbourne like banks and telco, just looking at how you build big systems that can handle you know, millions of transactions a day. Um, so I got to learn how to build really good, robust software that you could scale. And then I left that and I went and joined General Motors where I worked in their global R&D team. And that was really cool. That was like an engineer's dream where you get billion dollar budgets to play with cool tech and look at 10 to 20 years in the future. So it was an amazing experience. I got to travel the world. So I worked in Germany, Detroit, Sweden, worked in a global R&D team looking at how we build cars and build customer experiences, but more in the automotive sense in the future. And there was a process around how you look at the future and how you could understand the risks to your innovations that you build. I learned a lot about strategic innovation, design thinking, and then how you take innovation and put it into a big beast, which is the automotive industry which has a lot of parallels actually to the medical industry. You know, there's a lot of regulation, there's a production line and it moves quite slowly. And if you get it wrong, people can die. So there's a lot of parallels to automotive and medical. Uh, but one of the problems I saw working there was that the things I would work on in R&D rarely made it into mainstream engineering. And that was that disconnect. And so for me, I started really having that introspection. I was around 25 so was my quarter life crisis i call it where i quit my job and i went to india for 3 months india being where my ancestry is from even though i'm born in south america so i went to what i call the motherland just to see what life was all about and you know you do that you go to one of the most spiritual countries in the world and i remember doing a trek through the himalayas from darjeeling up through nepal and it was five grueling days of walking in freezing cold up and down hills to go to a vantage point to see Mount Everest. And, you know, in that five days, you walk and you really question yourself and your purpose and why you're here and the blessings you've had in your life and the people you have around you. And it really solidified for me my purpose in why I was here was to take all this knowledge that I accumulated from robotics to software to research and development, innovation, design, and put it towards something that I could have significant impact to people's lives. Um, so came back from India, really motivated, and a few years later started Curve on the back of creating a technology company where I could use all my skills and have significant impact into people's lives. And we chose healthcare as the first vertical that we wanted to try it on and thought that we could make change really straight away. And then we got into the healthcare system and realized, hey, this is a big gorilla yeah. that we're going to try and move. <laughs> and uh yeah, we've been in it since 2009. Amazing. It's no slouch of a story. I love the purpose and the why behind it and pulling on the different experiences. And I think a lot of people can resonate 
with that, whether from their own experience or even thinking about going through their own journey as well, perhaps studying something or in a gig right now, and they're like, I want to make a difference, but how do I kind of go from where I am now to that point? So it's great hearing you know, your journey through that. So then Curve Tomorrow, that's what you're doing now. You've been doing it since 2009. You, you mentioned it's a technology company. Tell us a bit more about it. Like, you know, the what is it, the who's it for, the what problems it solves. Yeah. So, you know, coming out of uni, we always had this dream of starting a company and doing something noble with all the things that we'd learned. And so in 2009, a couple of us got together and started Curve Tomorrow and attracted a few other of our university mates who were all ex-Mechatronics students and having vastly different experiences, trying to come together and put that into a company where we could use all those different skills to build tech for the healthcare industry. And given we had these different experiences and we looked at the market, we thought that digital health was the trend that hadn't hit yet, but was coming in, say, five to 10 years. And so what we did was we set about really niching ourselves into digital health and trying to uncover from you know, our design thinking experience, what are those key problems that patients experience and how can we build technology products to solve those problems? What we didn't want to do was be a technology company that sat outside of healthcare, created solutions, and then looked for a problem that fit that solution. We wanted to understand the problems and then build solutions and partner with healthcare to co-design and co-build that. So as part of our first projects, we worked with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and we asked them if we could embed ourselves as a small company within the Royal Children's Hospital campus so that we could live and breathe every day with health professionals and researchers to really understand their world. And that's that first part of design thinking is really to empathize with the people that you build for. And we could talk to patients and really understand you know, what their patient journey is like. So we started doing that from around 2012 was to sit inside the Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital and live and breathe and co-create products with them. And so what we do at Curve is we work with partners, medical institutions, hospitals, foundations, people who are trying to make a significant impact to people's lives in healthcare. And we help them on a few things. We work with them on how they do digital transformation and digital strategy in healthcare, how they design products by finding the real problems and issues that their users, whether they be patients or healthcare workers face. And then we go and build a solution using software engineering, and then we deploy it and support it. And depending on what type of solution it is, we then look at how do we help maintain that product or that service and make it sustainable or help them go raise funding if it's a commercial product and continue that product journey. So that's all the services that we work on on the Curve side and we partner with healthcare organisations. For us, it's really important that we work with people who are in healthcare and we co-create. That's really a key differentiator. And then on the other side, we have a Curve Ventures arm, which is what we could see was there's lots of great products out there. How do we fund or how do we own or co-own products or have equity stakes in products that we can help scale into Australia and beyond internationally as well? So we've got those two arms of Curve Tomorrow. One is the services side and one is a venture side in which we own digital products. So one is we create products with our partners and the other is we own products and try and scale them ourselves. Nice. I like the, you know, you're covering both aspects there and that gives you a real good understanding, like you were saying before, about the co-design and empathizing with those that are using it, but also for those that are creating it too, I guess, too. That's, um, that gives you some good insights there. I'm keen to learn a bit more about some of those health partners that you're working with or some of those examples of solutions that you've built so far. Can you tell me about those? Yeah. So one of the most successful examples that we've had is a product called HeadCheck. 
And so that's an example where we worked with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital to look at parents who were bringing their kids into ED with concussion symptoms. And what we found was that those parents were either bringing their kids too early or too late after they've had a concussion, say, on the weekend playing sports like footy. And so what we did was looked at how do we help those parents and those coaches who on the sideline on the weekend don't know whether their kid who's just been hit in the head has had a concussion or not and how serious it is. Should they go to ED? Should they call an ambulance? Should they just sit it out or should they go back on the field? That's a, a really tough situation for a parent or a coach to be in. And there isn't a medical professional on the sideline in most junior sports games. So what we did was we worked with concussion experts at the hospital and at the Research Institute to look at the guidelines for concussion. And we created a modified version of the SCAT-3, which is the main concussion guidelines that are used. And we modified it for pediatric use for kids. And we created a decision support tool for coaches and parents on the weekend. So if a kid got hit in the head, they could pull out the app, run through a guideline of how serious that concussion could be and give them some guidance on what actions they could take and how severe that could be. And what we see is that they could then go to the hospital or go to their doctor at the right time and get a proper diagnosis for concussion. And then beyond that, once they've been diagnosed with concussion, one of the other problems we saw was that they either go back and play sport too early and get another concussion and it amplifies the situation or that they're waiting too long and they're not sure when they can go back and they're a bit anxious. So what we wanted to do was then give them a post-concussion management program to go through to help them get back to sport or get back to school as soon as possible without the risk of re-injury. So we built that tool and we put it all in one app and we piloted it. It was actually pretty interesting when we were doing the design phase. If you're thinking about empathizing, we had to go to some sporting events on the weekend, some junior sports events, and we had to sit there and wait for kids to get concussed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so you're actually going to a sporting event going, I don't want a kid to get concussed, but I really want a kid to get concussed because then I can see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> or else I waste my weekend just watching a junior sports game. <laughs> and if it's not your kid, it's not that exciting to watch. I understand. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was really interesting from an empathizing point of view, from that design point of view to really understand what goes on. That's the level that we go to, to understand and empathize. So that was a really great outcome for us was to build this tool and to launch it. And we got more and more funding to keep building it out. And then because in the early stages, we were working with one of the medical doctors from the AFL, he was telling them about what we've been doing and they came on board and acquired use for, for the AFL junior sports program to get head check uh, used across the country. So from our point of view, from an impact sense of trying to get a 1 billion people, that was a great outcome for us because the tool's getting used nationally in junior sports. And, you know, we're still now in talks with other sporting coaches to see if they want to use it in their junior sports programs. And since then, the, the AFL has also asked us now to develop an adult version. So for amateur sports as well. Amazing. So that keeps building and building. And it's a great example of doing some kind of proms, prems around your experience or your health condition and then doing a therapeutic, so going through a program, a digital therapeutic, so going through a program where you hope to get a, a better outcome from going through that program on your phone. I was about to join those things together, actually, so it's interesting that you said that. I think that when we think about technology to help in the event of a concussion in a sporting event, one might immediately think 
something really fancy that measures kind of neural pathways that, you know, sits on the head and, and all that stuff is kind of cool. But, you know, when you think about the use case scenario, like you say, parents and coaches at junior football games and, and needing something quickly to refer to you in what's normally a very stressful situation and it's difficult to work through what needs to happen next. So a tool like that, utilizing the technology delivers a lot of value. So I can see how that's important to understand what's needed before building something, then seeing how it goes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's lots of different solutions. Like you could wear headgear that diminishes the force of impact. You can wear mouth guards. There's lots of cool technology. We're not short on technology in the world we live in now. It's more about what's the easiest thing to use to solve the problem. And that's what we found and we focus on is the most simplest solutions are the ones that are the easiest to use. And in some cases, you don't even know are there. So that's how we see technology moving us forward. That's a big one. I'm very aligned with that one. And coming to this point that we've kind of circled around with this episode too, around value-based care, that ties into a little bit of it too. But from your perspective, when you're thinking around value-based healthcare, and that's talked about a lot these days, what does that mean to you and why is it important in in what you do? Yeah, it, it means a lot to me because it's really what we built Curve Tomorrow to do is to provide value in healthcare. And when we talk about value-based healthcare, we're talking about flipping the script on how we do healthcare, especially here in Australia, which is more transactional. So you go see a doctor, the doctor gets paid for that visit, as opposed to you go see a doctor, you've got a problem, you've reported that problem, they give you something, and then your outcome is improved, and they get paid based on the outcome improving rather than just the visit. And that's really essential when we think of design thinking and patient journey and user-centered design and co-design, all those buzzwords. We're looking at building things that help someone improve their situation significantly. And so value-based healthcare to us really aligns to how we build and operate and really the DNA of Curve Tomorrow. And so for us, things like patient-recorded outcome measures, patient-recorded experience measures, which is measuring your experience through the healthcare system, and digital therapeutics really align towards a value-based healthcare system. Obviously, that's the technology that enables you to do the things or flip into a value-based healthcare system. But the technology is there and we've built a few different applications like HeadCheck, for instance, where you can do a digital therapeutic and move a patient forward or their health outcome forward by getting them to engage in a program or some technology. So, so to dig more yeah. into then the problems and prem side of things, is there work specifically you're doing in that space with some of the tech you're building as well? Yeah, so we've run a pilot out at Western Health Hospital in Melbourne where we've integrated one of our product platforms that we've built through our Curve Ventures arm to capture PROM data, so patient-recorded outcome measures, before a clinic visit. So we worked it with one clinic ward within the hospital, integrated that into their PAS system, so their patient administration system, so that they could, on their mobile phone before their appointment, capture data about their health and then that be reviewed by the clinician when they come to their appointment. So we did a really good pilot. That was funded by the government as well. And we worked closely with Western Health to get that working. Uh, And that was really cool. We found, I think it's a 75% participation rate and a really high satisfaction rate of the patients that went through that. And one of the side effects that we found out of that as well is that the no-shows for appointments, so sometimes people book appointments and they don't turn up for whatever reason, that significantly reduced because this is our hypothesis is that engaging people early in their healthcare journey means that they're more committed to going through with what their appointment or their visit is about. So that was a really good outcome for us. So we've just 
finished a pilot and we're looking at what next, how do we expand that across the hospital? And we've got a, a number of little pilots that we're doing with WeGuide, our platform, in some hospitals just to look at how we do proms and prems and help improve the service of what healthcare can give a patient. I like that. And there's some really good examples there that people can follow too, because sometimes when it comes to the conversation about building things with, say, the outcome in mind or being a value-based healthcare model, as opposed to, you know, a more traditional transactional model that we've got now, some people might feel that it's difficult to get traction with those because the funding model doesn't work that way and that's not how healthcare works. But as we build more and more solutions to solve for these problems and as there's more acceptance with these models, like you say, with the government-funded programs around problems and prems and that emerging need, it's something that as an industry, I think we can continue to build solutions that speak to that because it's a strong need that's there. So I think that's important. Yeah, definitely. And the motivation is there, I think, within the policymakers to move to value-based healthcare, but it is a big change. And you know what we've seen with COVID is that when we're pushed to the cliff face, we can make changes really quick when it comes to adopting technology. So I think we're at that phase where we are empowering patients to take care of their own healthcare and track their own healthcare. You know, the health and well-being market is a massive market now, especially for digital apps. And so as we start empowering people taking healthcare into their own hands and providing them medical grade content to engage with, we should see that, you know, while we're waiting for the healthcare regulations to change to enable value-based healthcare, patients can already start getting the value of value-based healthcare by empowering themselves Mm. with their own medical content. Yeah. It starts to snowball from there. And then building on that for those, you know, technology providers that are creating solutions, just operating within the industry generally, any advice you can provide from your own experience for startups that are operating in this health tech space looking to make a meaningful impact? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we do a fair bit of mentoring, you know, with And Health and up and coming startups. We like to still consider ourselves in startup mindset, even though we've been around since 2009. And having a ventures arm that we fund and spin out our own tech product companies, we still have to stay with our head in the game of how you act like a startup. So one of the things that we always focus on, and it's taken us a long time to do this, is to stay in the niche and stay focused, especially if you've got one product offering that you're applying to the market. And that market traction is really important and getting buy-in from the healthcare institutions or the healthcare clinicians who are going to use it. One of the things that we find that frustrates healthcare professionals is when you build something and then you come to them and go, hey, I've solved your problem, you should use this, as opposed to going, hey, I'd really love to understand your problems and help build something to solve that. So I think from a healthcare startup point of view, it's really engaging the healthcare industry and sharing your idea early. It's rare someone can steal your idea. It's really hard to get a startup off the ground and make it into a billion dollar business if that's your target. It's really, really hard. So kudos to those who have done it. But yeah, it's really hard for someone to steal your idea and make something of it. So externalize it, talk to people. Most people in industry, they're focused on their own thing, but they'd love to share the knowledge and the mistakes they've made. We've made so many mistakes, burnt a lot of money already trying to launch startups that have failed in healthcare. So, you know, for us, it's try fail, repeat until we succeed uh, and learn. So stay focused, stay niched, engage in healthcare. And one thing that we found as a services company building products is being willing to cannibalize yourself to build better services for the partners that you work with. So like our WeGuide platform is a great example of we were doing that in 
our services company and continuously doing it all the time, it's a waste to keep rebuilding this tool every time for different partners. We might as well build a platform. They can then do this a lot cheaper and we can scale it as a product and a platform. And, you know, one of the trends that we're moving to now is this no code, low code movement where people can design their own apps without needing to code. And so we see that as a big part of where we're headed with WeGuide. But yeah, I think from a, a bigger organization that wants to get involved in the startup world, it's about being able to cannibalize yourself or else someone else will do it for you. I think that was a great, great quote from uh, Steve Jobs back in the day. Yeah. If I give advice to organizations, honestly, it revolves around those three things. So I love that you've highlighted those points around the niching down, doubling down on something and being hyper-specific in terms of what you're solving and really solve for that. I'm big on the externalizing ideas concept. We're in an industry where culturally it's been, you know, hold on to your idea and don't tell anyone until you've got NDAs because as soon as you tell them, they're going to go off and build the thing that you're so passionate about when in reality they don't really care and don't have the energy to be able to do that. And we'll certainly suggest they might, but to actually do it, like you say, it's a a long road to actually execute on it. And the continuing to give, I think the point around cannibalizing what you do, I think that that extends to if you're continuing to deliver value, then it pays back in and of itself once you continue to build off the value you've created. So while it might feel like you're giving up on a little thing, you know, you could have monetized this component, but you're bundling into something else you're doing. Uh, all of a sudden that pays back to be able to build a bigger thing for the next time around. So playing that long game, it's um, so good. So I love that you're in sync with that. Thinking that applying all of that and what you're doing at Curve and looking ahead in, on the horizon, what's happening at Curve over the next 6, 12, 24? Yeah. So for Curve, we've got this big growth mentality. So for us, it's moving, you know, even though we've got that startup mindset that we're talking about, we are moving to that medium-sized company where you need to put in structure and you need to put in development plans. You need to put in things that can allow you to repeat what you do consistently. So for us, it's a maturity of our services company and then to start branching out. So right now we work nationally. We want to establish ourselves more in some markets like Queensland and Northern Territory and Tasmania, but also go a bit more international. For us to achieve our big impact target, we need to start building products that get used in Asia, and that's a big target for us. So to get to 1 billion, we've got that 4.3 billion on our doorstep that we need to start actively engaging with and understanding their problems. So having part of our team in Mumbai and Pakistan and in Europe allows us to get some of the problems that we might be seeing out of there and looking at how we approach that. So we do have a cool project that we're working on with the Royal Children's Hospital and with UNICEF to put out some global guidelines out into Laos. So that'll be a cool project where we get to actively build something that's going to get used in Asia in remote communities. And also here in Australia, we do know that there's still inequity for people who live in rural communities or our Indigenous community. So we're working on some projects where we're trying to bridge the medical gap and the service offering that people have in those communities um, here locally. And that's a problem that's faced all over the world. So we're not taking our eye off the ball of things and inequity that we have here in Australia. So for us, we're on this growth phase and getting back to Sanji, he's, you know, he was leading ventures and curves. So he's now focused in on the ventures in that WeGuide platform and scaling that up. Uh, For us, because we do consult in the area of how you scale up a business and commercialize, we want to do it at a big scale now so that when we tell others how to do it, we can go, well, we've done it to that further step of raising a certain amount of capital or getting an acquisition or 
going public or whatever it may be, but that event that maybe a startup might be looking for. So from a commercial aspect, you know, the WeGuide platform is something from a ventures arm that we're really focused on and we've built a really solid team around. And yeah, for that, it's about scale. And we know that as Curve Tomorrow to get to our 1 billion target, we've got to be invested in a whole bunch of different products. So for us, doing products like WeGuide and HeadCheck and others where we can scale it out nationally and internationally is really key for us to start ramping up our our impact. We've got 250,000 that we've recorded now, but in a few years' time, we need to start impacting millions of people a year. We've actually modelled it to be able to do it by 2040. And we want to do it a lot earlier. I don't want to be 60 and, you know, get to the billion-dollar target. I want, to, I want to do it while I'm still running around. So, yeah, that's that's our big target as Curve Tomorrow is to start scaling those things out and getting impact over the next couple of years. Amazing. No, look, I such a cool portfolio of stuff that you do to be able to make a, an impact. And I love the fact that you're aiming to impact a billion people. And yeah, hopefully you can do it before 2040 and start seeing some scale on some <laughs> of those things. So um, that's amazing. Look, I'll put some contact details and uh, all the stuff that you're doing in the show notes of this episode, Mo, so people can get in touch if they're keen to explore. But we'll have to connect again soon and, and stay in touch within the community so that uh, we can see how things are going. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.